Hey everyone, and welcome to the 21st episode of The Liam McCollum Show. Kind of took a little bit of a hiatus there, trying to adjust from having school and the structure of classes into summer, looking for some job opportunities and stuff like that. Also, kind of seeing some opening, some doors start to open with the podcast, might be able to expand in a little bit. Um, So definitely be on the lookout for that have some ideas with some colleagues. But yeah, uh, today we're gonna be interviewing Dr. Anthony Davies. He is the Milton Friedman Distinguished Fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education. He is the Associate Professor of Economics at Duquesne University and co-host of the podcast Words and Numbers. Dr. Davies authors monthly columns on economics and public policy for the Philadelphia Inquirer and Pittsburgh Tribune Review. He's written a book on understanding statistics published by the Cato Institute and has co-authored hundreds of op-eds for, among others, the Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, and Washington Post. His YouTube videos on economics, government, and policy have garnered millions of views. I actually grew up watching a lot of them, especially on Learn Liberty, but you can subscribe to them at Anthony Davies on YouTube. It's going to be pretty exciting. I just wanted to bring him on to talk a little bit about the current crisis that we're going through right now. Uh, He has a lot of videos on fallacies certain economic fallacies and stuff like that so figured perfect time to bring him on and talk a little bit about that so here's the interview i'm anthony davies i'm associate professor of economics at duquesne university in pittsburgh and the milton friedman distinguished fellow at the foundation for economic education yeah well i really appreciate you coming on um i i actually grew up watching some of your youtube videos uh that have kind of become pretty popular And I thought, what a, what a perfect time in this kind of crisis that we're going through to bring you on and talk about some of the things that we're seeing right now. Um, and one of the first things that I kind of wanted to maybe talk about was your article on the COBRA effect. Could you kind of explain what that is? Yeah, well, let me use COBRA effect to, to talk about a class of economic problems. And they, they fall under the more formal heading of unintended consequences. That is... These are instances in which the government, through some regulation or taxation or whatever it is, is attempting to encourage people to behave in a certain way. And people react to the fact that their their autonomy has been has been infringed in some fashion and start and in reacting to that, bring about uh, the opposite effect of what the uh, of what the, um, the law was intended to. To, to accomplish. A good case in point here are laws banning plastic shopping bags. Now, the intent is, of course, we want to protect the environment and plastic bags are bad for the environment, so let's ban them. Okay, but consider how people react to that. Um, you know, you have people who use the plastic bags to pick up after their dogs or to line their garbage cans at home. And now they don't have these plastic bags anymore. So what do they do? Well, they purchase plastic bags. Typically the plastic bags that, you know, come on the roll, pull the thing out, you open it up, this kind of thing. And what economists have found is that in cities that have banned plastic shopping bags, sales of plastic bags on a roll have gone up 120%. So clearly people are are shifting to this. Now, what's the problem? Well, the problem is those plastic bags, the one you buy on the roll, 
use way more plastic than the plastic shopping bags. And so when you're done, you've got this thing of, I, I passed this law with the intent of reducing the plastic usage and actually caused an increase in plastic usage. That's an unintended consequence, or we call it the cobra effect. Right, and now I think in in a time like this, during the coronavirus and all these lockdowns, I think that um, maybe we're seeing some of that and maybe you've observed this. Is there any unintended consequence from these lockdowns that you're observing? Um, I know a lot of people are talking about, well, we need to flatten the curve and they've kind of changed their narrative and uh, flattening the curve now means something much different than it originally did. But what are some of the unintended consequences that we're seeing, especially economically? Well, I mean, the, the economic effect, I wouldn't necessarily call an unintended consequence, but because typically this isn't, you know, set in stone, but typically when we talk about unintended consequences, what we mean are consequences that run exactly counter to our intention. So, for example, with the lockdown, the intent is we want to um, save people's lives by you know, reducing the spread of the disease. And one of the things that's, that has happened is we've seen a marked spike in um, domestic violence, in suicides from people who are, who are you know, despondent from being cut off from other human beings, from people who have lost their jobs and you know, all the mental problems that come along with that. And so you have, on the one hand, this rule intended to save lives is, on the other side, costing lives. That's, so we call that the unintended consequence. Now, apart from all of that, you also have, which you pointed out, the economic effect, uh, which is, you know, we're pushing now, I don't know what the latest number is, and, and it's going to take a while before the numbers come out, but I would not at all be surprised if our unemployment rate right now is approaching 30% which is higher than what it was in the Great Depression. And you know, this, is, this is part of what comes about from this lockdown. If you tell people you all have to stay home, well, we can't go out and produce things. And so the economy starts to decline. Right. And what's interesting is that we're also seeing um, the stock market kind of recover um, during all of this, even though unemployment is going up. And a lot of people, I, don't, I think that they like to look at the stock market and um, you know, that represents all of the economy. Um, can you kind of speak on that and what's happening there? Yeah, and, and I'm going to preface my remarks by saying this is my suspicion. Um, we're going to have to wait till the data comes in to see how right or wrong I am here. But my suspicion is what what's happened is the, the Federal Reserve has, has dramatically increased the money supply by purchasing... Uh, government bonds and it was purchasing government bonds so the government could do this whatever it was two point something trillion dollar stimulus so so that that stimulus money is not something the government had in its pocket the federal reserve is increasing the money supply so the government can spend that money now typically what happens other things equal when you increase the money supply like that you get inflation well, we're not seeing inflation. Prices of goods and services, if anything, might have, might have fallen a bit. So it raises the question, where did the money go? One possibility is that the money went not into goods and services, but into financial markets. 
into stocks and into bonds, which would cause those prices to rise. So you talk about the increase in the stock market. That's that's exactly that. It's the increase in prices of stocks. And, and here's the kicker. When we calculate inflation, we only look at prices of goods and services. We don't look at prices of financial instruments. So you can so you can get in this situation where the Federal Reserve has has injected money into the system that should have caused inflation. We're not seeing it because it's not rising. It's not raising the price of goods and services. It's raising the prices of financial instruments, and that's my suspicion as to what's going on right now. Okay, and now you have another video just to kind of like go back and talk about inflation as a whole. You have a video on inflation being a tax on savings. Can you kind of explain, um, one, what inflation is, maybe explain what prices are um, and how that relates to that, and then how it would affect savings if it went into um, goods and services? Yeah, that's a good question. So when when we talk about inflation, what what it means technically is a rise in the prices of goods and services, right? And what often happens, and it might take a little while to play out, but what often happens is when you get inflation, prices of goods and services rise. Thereafter, you'll also see a commensurate increase in wages. And so if you play this out over a long period of time, what does long mean? I don't know, maybe six months, maybe a year, but you play this out over a period of time, what you find is the prices go up, let's say they go up 20% in response to the Federal Reserve injecting money into the system. Prices go up 20%, but then wages and salaries go up 20% as well. So when you're done, you're no better or worse off than you were before. You're paying 20% more for stuff, but you're taking home 20% more pay. So it looks like a wash there. Here's where it is not a wash. If I have $1,000 in the bank, sitting there in a savings account, and along comes the Fed, it injects money into the system, prices start to rise, they rise 20%. Eventually my wages rise, they rise 20%. In terms of my wages, I'm just as well off as I was before, except that $1,000 sitting in my savings account, it's that didn't rise 20%, it's still $1,000. It now buys 20% less than it bought before. So what's really happened when the when the Federal Reserve increases the money supply like that and you get inflation, you have done the exact same thing as if you had put a tax on my savings. Now, you haven't taken away the number of dollar bills. I still have $1,000 in my savings account. What you have done is you've taxed away the purchasing power of those dollar bills. And it's really the purchasing power of the dollar bills I care about. I don't care how many there are. I care how much stuff I can buy with this. So in that, that's the sense in which inflation is economically identical to a tax on savings. Since we were kind of talking about possibly the money being injected into the stock market, I guess, is there a concern in the long run that that money will flatten out into the rest of the economy and prices will rise? Yeah, if, if the story I think is true, is true. And, and let me back up a minute because you, you said something that isn't quite correct. You said the money was injected into the stock market. What happens is the Fed injects the money into the economy and then people and businesses decide where they want that money to go. Okay. And my suspicion is what's happened is people decide they're just going to sit on this money. They're going to invest it in stocks and bonds rather than spending it. 
And um, and so, so what happens is over time, um, as things start to get better and you know the economy's picking up, and I look over here, I've got a lot of money in my stocks and in my bonds that I've socked away over time. I'm now going to pull that out and start to spend it. When I do that, now you're going to see the increase in prices of goods and services. Mm. So you can't get around the fact that if you inject money into the system, you're going to get inflation. The question is, are you going to get it now or are you going to get it later? Okay. And then I think another one of when, when I've been studying inflation, I think one of the biggest concerns is like, um, and tell me if I'm correct, the pe- the first people who initially get the money or benefit from the newly added money they technically, I mean, they benefit, whereas the people who don't get the money in the in the short run, as soon as prices adjust, they're hurt by that price adjustment. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, your, your head's in the right place. So let's go back to the 20% example. The Fed injects money into the system, which will cause eventually prices to rise to 20%. Well, the prices don't rise instantaneously. They rise over time as these new dollars start to get exchanged back and forth for goods and services. So whoever is getting the dollars at the outset, and typically that's the federal government, um, and the federal government now spends those dollars, it's spending while the prices are still low. And over time, as other people spend the money that the federal government is now spending given to them, and it goes back and forth amongst other hands, then the prices start to rise. Right. Okay. And now in your article about massive inflation and the fact that it may be coming, um, you talk a little bit about deficit spending. And a lot of people that I've, or some people that I've heard from say that deficits aren't a problem. Um, Can you kind of talk about what deficits are and how this might affect inflation? Yeah, there's a couple terms we have to be clear about here. One is the debt, one is the deficit. So the deficit is the amount that the government spends this year that's beyond what it earns. So if it spends $4 trillion and only brings in $3 trillion in taxes, that's a $1 trillion deficit. So deficits go by year. You have deficit this year, deficit next year, deficit year after that, and so forth. The debt is the accumulation of those deficits. So we have a $1 trillion this year, we have a $2 trillion next year, and $3 trillion next year. That's a total of $6 trillion. That goes toward the debt. Now, people have said, and and I don't disagree in spirit, that the debt doesn't matter. And and what I mean by that is we don't need to pay off the debt. You can just keep rolling it over like you would with a credit card. You carry a balance on your credit card. You don't need to pay that thing off tomorrow. As long as you can make the minimum monthly payments, you're good. Carry that balance as, as long as you want. So too with the government debt. Now, the downside is you've got to pay interest on this. And currently the federal government's paying somewhere around, I think, 500 billion, 300 billion, somewhere in that range, multiple hundreds of billions a year in interest on that debt. So, so that matters because that's several hundred billion dollars that we could have spent on other things. You could have spent it on infrastructure or education or whatever it is, or you could have just given it back to the people in the form of, of tax cuts, but you can't do any of that because you've got to spend it on interest on the debt. And the bigger that debt gets, the more interest every year you're going to have to spend, and so the less things the federal government can do. So that's the sense in which the debt matters. 
the deficit matters in that it adds to the debt. Great. And now to kind of change topics a little bit, you, um, you do have an article on the meat supply disruptions. Um, but really quick, can you talk about the non-essential worker fallacy and how that plays into that? Yeah, that's a good one. Lots of governors talk about this, the essential jobs, the unessential jobs. You can't separate out the economy like that into essential and non-essential because every single industry is intertwined with all the others. So I have a grocery store and everyone would say, yeah, that's essential. You've got to sell food. Okay, well, the food comes in on uh, trucks, on pallets, the wooden pallet things. And um, the pallets have to be manufactured. You know, they break down over time and I can't receive my shipment if it isn't on a pallet. That's how we move this thing. So all of a sudden, the wood manufacturing, the people who manufacture the pallets are now uh, an essential business. And they put these pallets together with nails. Well, if they can't have na- if they don't have nails, they can't put the pallets together, which means I can't get the food delivered. So now all of a sudden nails are, are essential. And it goes on and on like this, all sorts of things. And, and what you find is the economy is not, we use the term supply chain. It's not a, there's, it's not a sequence of parallel supply chains where I can shut this one off and everything's okay. It's, it's a web. It's all interrelated. And you shut down, you know, you cut any piece of it and you weaken the entire structure. And also, so you do have another article on um, the distinction between transferism and socialism. Um, Can you talk about the difference there and what we're seeing today in relation to those two um, terms? Yeah, socialism, strictly speaking, is an economic system in which the government owns the means of production. And means of production means uh, the infrastructure, the raw materials, the heavy industry, the government owns all of that. And even today in the United States, with self-proclaimed socialist politicians, think about Bernie Sanders or AOC, they don't call for this sort of thing. What they're calling for is something different. They're calling for a tax to be placed on one group of people so that we collect a bunch of money and give it to this other group of people. We call that in economics a transfer. So really what they're advocating is not the government owning the means of production, which is socialism. They're advocating massive transfer wealth. Take take from one group, give to another. And, and we call that transferism. Right. And is the type of inflation and the printing of money would you consider that a type of transferism as well in a way yeah that's a good call if i'm if i'm printing money injecting into the system i'm i'm having the same effect as if i reached into your savings account and took your money and what am i doing with this money i printed i'm I'm, you know building things i'm paying for education for example i'm going to pay off student loans okay well what i've just done is i've taken money away from people who have saved it and given it to students who have student loans. That's transferism. Right. And so in these so-called stimulus bills that we saw during just the past couple of months, we we also saw, you know, there were there was a lot of criticism because, you know, the taxpayer got a thousand five hundred dollars or something like that in their savings, yet um you know, the stock market is getting so much money or all these companies are getting a bunch of bailouts. Um, what type of, if it is transferism, were we seeing there? Yeah, transferism is not simply 
um, taking money from one group of people and giving to another. I say group of people, but, but that's what it is ultimately, right? One people versus another. You can also take it from one group of people and give it to another in the form of giving it to a corporation. So I take a bunch of money from these taxpayers over here and I hand it over to some big corporation. That's also transferism. And, and it's as bad as the other type of transferism. Because in both instances, what you're doing is stepping into a place where you have a bunch of people who are voluntarily making decisions to exchange. And the federal government stepped in and said, no, we're going to change the rules here. And you have to give more and to these people and they get more. And it doesn't matter whether these people are standing behind a corporation or not. It's the same idea that we're taking from one group and giving to another. Okay. So on that note about the $1,200 that, that we all received, they're, they're talking about doing it again. Um, and I've, you've talked a little bit about UBI in the past. Um, can, you, can you talk a little bit about your opinion of receiving $1,200 a month? Yeah. And I want to make a distinction because these are two very different things. The $1,200 a month that the federal government's kicking out to people <laughs> currently is um, I have I have less I don't think it's a good idea but I, I have much less of a problem with it because the reason people are in a position of needing that money is because the federal government stepped in and said you may not operate your business right. so in in this sense it's the government trying to fix a harm it created now it shouldn't have created the harm in the first place and that's an entirely different debate but it's attempting to fix a harm it created. UBI is another matter. UBI is, um, it's not a matter of trying to fix a harm. It's just saying, look, we want to provide a safety net for people. So everybody's going to pay into a pot and we're going to divide this money and everybody gets, gets X dollars. And my warning on UPI, UBI is this. It is, it is a better way to handle social welfare problems than the ways we do it now with income assistance and unemployment insurance and social security and minimum wage and Medicaid and all of those things. A UBI is a much better way to handle that because you take, you take decision-making and you put it in the hands of the individual rather than saying to you, I'm going to give you so much food stamps so you can buy some food. I give you so much insurance so you can have insurance. I give you so much of this other thing. Instead of doing that, I just give you a chunk of money and say, you buy what you think is important for you. That's a much better way of doing it, provided you, you replace everything we currently do, everything from Social Security, Medicaid, all the way down to minimum wage, all of it gone, being replaced by the UBI. That, I think, is a decent idea. However, putting UBI on top of everything we have now is a worse idea than what we have now. Okay. And then to kind of get a little off topic, just cause you mentioned it right there. Some of one of your most interesting videos for me is um, your, your talk about the minimum wage and the case for um, getting rid of it. Can you talk a little bit about it, about that just since we brought it up? Yeah. The, the thing I think people go off the rails when they think about minimum wage because they, they conceive of it incorrectly. They conceive of minimum wage as, as putting a thumb on the scale in an, in an argument between the worker and the employer, that the employer wants to pay less, the worker wants to get more, and so the minimum wage comes in and says, no, no, employer, you have to pay more. 
And that's really not what's going on. What's going on is this is a, a, a conflict, not between employer and worker, but between worker and worker, between higher skilled worker and lower skilled worker. And what's happening is the minimum wage is coming in and we're saying, okay, employers, you have to pay your workers at least $15 an hour. Okay. What's an employer do when you tell him you have to pay your workers $15 an hour? He looks around at his workers and he asks, which of these workers is worth $15 an hour? And those that aren't worth $15 an hour, they're fired. And with the money I save, I can now you know, increase the payments to these other people who need to make $15 an hour. And you can see what I, what's just happened here. This is a conflict that wasn't between employer and worker, but between worker and worker. And who got the fuzzy end of the sucker were the workers that most desperately need our help. The lower skilled, the less educated, the less experienced workers, the ones who aren't worth the $15 an hour. Those are the ones that get kicked out of the labor force. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really good. And now to get back to more um, what's going on today, there you have another article called No Policy Can Save Lives, It Can Only Trade Lives. Do you want to kind of break that down? Yeah, that came about in response to this, to the lockdown business where politicians were saying, well, we need to, we need to save lives. We need to flatten the curve. And so we do the lockdown. And, and our point, this goes back to your original question of unintended consequences. Our point in that article was to say, but look, there is no policy that will save lives. There are only policies that will trade off lives in one area for lives in another. And what's happened is we've traded off. We have fewer deaths due to COVID, but we have more deaths due to domestic violence, due to suicide, due to depression. And, and, and so in the end, what we see is the politician can't save lives. He can only alter the, how the lives are lost. Now, hopefully, if you've done this right, the lives that you save from the COVID exceed the lives that you lose from the depression, domestic violence, and, and all of that. What bothers me here is if you go back and look at the discussion, the public discussion we had about lockdown way back in March, you didn't hear any of that second piece. All you heard were politicians talking about the first piece, how many people are gonna die from COVID and how we can reduce those numbers of deaths. When what I really wanted to hear was the trade-off of, okay, we're gonna save some people here, but we're gonna lose some people here. We think that the savings here is going to be bigger than the loss over there. But that conversation never took place, or if it did, it certainly didn't take place in the public sector, in this public sphere. Right. And that bothers me. It bothers me because it suggests that the politicians ultimately were concerned not with saving lives, but with saving their image. Mm. And and their image would be much more tarnished from COVID deaths than they would from from suicide deaths. Mm. Yeah, and I think I think that's a really good point. And um, something that's actually kind of unique, especially with this coronavirus case, that I think we might observe is, you know, it, it definitely would have traded lives this certain policy if if we actually had a cure for the coronavirus. But I think in this specific case, we might actually there might be more of a cost because what what we're finding today is that if we don't have a cure, if we don't have a vaccine or something, the same amount of people that would have died if we just 
you know, took it in March right. are going to happen later in November. And we're and yeah, they're going to die anyway. It's just going to be a different point in time. Yep. Right. Yep. So That's a good point. So it's going to be suicides. It's going to be domestic violence. It's going to be all of these things added on top. Um, so I found that that's probably the most egregious part of this specific policy. Um, but yeah, that's that's a gr- very good point. Um, and now on to you, you have a book about um, coercion versus cooperation. And yeah. you, you mentioned in, in another article about human cooperation and how that's better than what we're seeing today. Can you talk a little bit about human co- cooperation and what we've seen during the coronavirus and how that could help? Yeah. So in in this book, Cooperation and Coercion, which you can get on Amazon, we talk about the fact that humans always organize themselves in one of two ways, either by cooperative principles, that is voluntary interaction, or by coercive principles, that is some people are going to tell others what they're going to do. And in there's some really interesting examples of cooperative behavior in response to COVID. One of the first that came out, and it came out early, was this business about grocery stores uh, reserving the first hour of the day for the elderly. There was no law that said that they had to do this. Some grocery store somewhere came up with this idea. They realized, oh my God, the, the place is cleanest in that first hour after we've had the night before to clean everything out. And if we if we restrict our clientele to the elderly, there's less chance of them picking up something from someone who has some has a disease. And so some grocery store somewhere came up with this and did it. And other grocery stores saw it and said, that's excellent, we're doing it too. And before you knew it, grocery stores across the country were doing this. And this is indicative of, of cooperation where people voluntarily adopt certain behaviors based on whether they perceive these behaviors to be good or not. And and here you've got some grocery stores and they're profit-seeking entities, of course. But notice something, they have a strong profit incentive to make sure their customers are healthy because dead customers don't spend money. So to the extent that the grocery store, store can not only keep it a safe and healthy environment, but also make you comfortable that it's a safe, healthy environment, you're more apt to come there and that's good for the grocery store. And the the difference between that, a cooperative um, venture and, and a coercive venture, with a coercive venture, you would have some government entity saying, you will do the following. Here's the problem. With a cooperative relationship, If the people involved see that it's working, they'll keep doing it. If they see that it's not working, they'll voluntarily walk away. They'll do something different. With a a coercive relationship, if it works, that's great. But if it doesn't work, you can't walk away. It's a coercive relationship. And so you get this thing of people, you know, offering bootleg haircuts because why? They, they're in a space where they realize, yes, given the risks, this is, is actually something that, that people need and that I'm willing to do, and I'm willing to do it, but I have to do it on the sly in the background with, with threat of getting arrested because the, the fundamental relationship here is coercive, it's not cooperative. Right, and I think one of the biggest illustrations of this, um, especially within this crisis, is Cuomo's um, coercion of uh, accepting nursing homes or accepting people back into nursing homes during this time. Right. Um, right. And 
I think one of the silliest thing about the whole thing was that he later came back and said, when, when explaining what happened and what went wrong, he said it was due to the fact that they were profit seeking. He, he didn't blame his own law. He said, well, it's because these nursing homes are inherently profit seeking. So there's always like, there's this stigma around for profit, like that phrase that a lot of people always bring up and there's never any evidence behind it. It's just people like Cuomo not taking the blame. Um, can you talk a little bit about that discrepancy and why people think for-profit institutions are so bad? I think profit gets a bad rap um, because people think if you're a profit-driven entity, you're only interested in your bottom line. Sure, I'll buy that. Let's suppose you're only interested in your bottom line. But, you're, but you're, we're missing here the important underlying theme, which is the only way you can get profit is by convincing me to voluntarily hand over my money in exchange for what you're offering, which means you have to be hyper-focused on me, on what I want, on what makes me happy, because if you fulfill that, you get my money. If you don't, you don't. So in, in that sense, being profit-motivated is far from being a bad thing. It's an excellent thing. Uh, imagine how... The, uh, the DMV, the people who give you your license, right? You go down, you sit in a chair, you take a picture, this kind of thing. Imagine how differently they would behave if they were profit motivated. And, and you know, for an example, look at, look at how uh, grocery stores behave, right? And they've got specials and flashy lights and come over here and things are arranged and discounts and all of this sort of thing. They're hyper-focused on giving you what you want. The folk at the DMV, as good as they might be, they aren't hyper-focused on giving me what I want because they will earn their paycheck regardless of whether they give me what I want. I can't walk away with my dollars somewhere else. Right, exactly. Well, um, I think we're done here, but if you want to just tell people um, if there's anything else that you want to say to them or if you want to tell them where they can find you, that would be great. Well, our book uh, is on Amazon, as I mentioned, called Cooperation and Worship. And uh, my colleague, James Harrigan, and I have a weekly podcast, Words and Numbers, which you can find at wordsandnumbers.org. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Liam. Bye. Take it easy. It's the weekend. We can let go. 